Welcome to the Radical Reverend Show, and yes, uh, we are definitely not on campus. We are recording from afar, as always, and uh, and yeah, second wave. Ow! Uh, anyway, what can you do? Um, we live in uh, Doug Ford's Ontario, um, so let's move on from there to what we are uh, dealing with now. Is is the none other than the Sandy Hudson, a winner of numerous awards. Uh, featured from the New York Times, the CBC, co-founder of Black Lives Matters Canada, and is in Los Angeles at UCLA. Uh, Sandy, welcome to the Radical Reverend Show. Thanks for having me back. And David, uh, David Slavic, uh, who's been on the show before as well. David has worked in policy and advocacy uh, for 15 years in Washington, D.C. Started his career off in uh, Yugoslavia, the former Yugoslavia, and is now coming to us from Newfoundland. Absolutely. <laughs> Welcome, David. Yeah, it's a, it's a pleasure to be here and uh, it's a pleasure to be in this great country. Well, good. So let's talk a bit about how it is to be a transplanted Canadian in, in, in L.A. Sandy, wildfires. What's going on there? Is, this, is the sky still orange? Uh, um, right now, it is no longer orange, thank goodness. Um, it has been really terrifying because, you know, obviously, someone from Toronto, this is not something that I'm used to experiencing but uh, there was a period of time where it just looked sepia outside. And I think that that's even strange for people out here on the West Coast. So some folks would have seen the images coming out of San Francisco, which is quite a bit more North than here, which were truly orange. Uh, but here it just looked like I, I kept reaching for my eyes to take my sunglasses off and realizing <laughs> that I didn't have any sunglasses on the one day that I did go outside um, when that was happening and I was only outside for five minutes and the irritation in my throat I was like tearing up it was it was terrible and so we really didn't um, uh, go outside or open the windows for a few weeks and even now today even though it looks fine I check the air quality um, analysis every day if uh, in the event uh, to, to decide whether or not I want to go outside uh, just to take a walk. And, and so it's been fluctuating still, you know, sometimes it's moderate, sometimes it's, um, it's it, the recommendation is not to go outside and it looks fine. But it was a weird couple of weeks, you know, there was, uh, it was like ash snow that um, just falling from the sky. And I've never experienced anything like that before. It was absolutely terrifying. And, and by the way, um, uh, welcome uh, Sandy and David to, of course, uh, this panel, which is our law and disorder panel. Uh, David, what's it like in Newfoundland? You were in a quarantine there for a while visiting, uh, visiting your in-laws, so. Absolutely, it's uh, been exciting to be in, in Newfoundland. We had to get a legal exemption to come here, despite being uh, legal residents of Canada. Uh, due to the uh, complicated uh, legal status of the province, uh, at least the way it's defining itself and its new borders uh, there around this island that we call uh, the Rock. Uh, 
uh, it's uh, been lovely here. Uh, it's a relatively COVID-free environment, so that's been sort of different. And, and as people who may know about Newfoundland, it is not Nova Scotia, uh, as many people are confused. Uh, the, the air here is very lovely. Uh, the sea is beautiful, and, and uh, the cod is clean and delicious. But uh, it's uh, it's been quite a contrast being an American and watching what's happening there, having an affinity towards Los Angeles and California as well, and seeing what's happening there, and, and then being here where it's uh, life is continuing as usual. Yeah, uh, Sandy, to get back to you, COVID, what's, what's happening there where you are? Well, um, I live uh, pretty close to this uh, large stadium called The Forum. Um, and what they've done is set up in places like that, where there's this massive parking lot, um, these drive-through test centers where anybody can, can go and get a test done and it, it takes some time to get your results a few days. Uh, but, but generally those have quieted down quite a bit. They're not as, it's not like the long, long lines of cars or the long, long waiting lists that I'm hearing about in Ontario. Um, but, uh, you know, it's the, the amount of cases per day are, you know, similar to Ontario, things are on the rise. And so that's, that's scary. But I mean, for someone like me, who's in school and not required to, to uh, go somewhere to go to work, like many other workers are, especially, you know, I, I get to, you know, be, I feel privileged in some way to be able to not have to expose myself. Um, and then we hear the news coming out of Amazon this morning that 19,000 workers, 19,000 workers in the United States um, contracted uh, COVID-19 through their work. And I think the takeaway from that is that we hear so often about, you know, young people having parties and having to send the cops in to break up these parties. But I mean, gosh, are we having a conversation about how this, this like really intense commitment to a capitalist society uh, and the spread in workplaces, in, in nursing homes, that's, that's a societal responsibility. And we, we have not wrestled with that in the same way at all. And I hate the distraction of these are, are young folks and millennial aged folks refusing to respect. It's, I mean, the, the level of institutional spread through workplaces is far more great. And um, that, that's terrifying to me. Absolutely. Uh, and let's let's segue from uh, talking about COVID in general to uh, the news, of course, that broke that um, that uh, the that President Trump and Melania, um, uh, Mrs. Trump uh, have COVID. And the reaction on social media was 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 kind of interesting. I mean, I, I as I posted, I, I said, you know, it's, it's telling a telling moment on the presidency when the vast majority of the tweets that I'm reading think this is a hoax or some kind of play or ploy. Um, so you're you're in the you're in the states, Sandy. Uh, what what are people saying down there? First of all, what are you hearing? And then um, and then what the hell is happening? Like what's going to happen from here? So weigh in, weigh in. Oh God, what are people saying? You know, I, the news came through when I was. Uh, um, 
in a study group last night uh, with a few of my friends uh, trying to get ready for a test. And this is, this, it just feels so bizarre to be continuing life as normal when it feels as though um, the, um, the American empire is like slowly trudging towards civil war. (laughs) But anyway, you know, the news comes through um, that he has COVID and if, if, if I may say this in the presence of a spiritual person, <laughs> there was some jubilation on the line, <laughs> um, but then immediately worry, right? Yeah. Because people were concerned. Okay, this is October. People often talk about the October surprise before an election where some sort of large news comes out typically at the beginning of October uh, for people who do political analyzing of, of the United States election. Um, it's called the October Surprise, and that shifts uh, the way that the that the the electoral the electorate understand what's happening in the next thirty days to the election, and and can radically shift the way that the election turns out. And so, folks are wondering: Is this a planned October Surprise? Is it real? If it's real, how real is it? <laughs> and and it's just. I will say what I said to my cousin Jenea this morning, who I know you know, Sherry. Yes. Um, I said to them, wow, is it like, what sort of world do we live in where every single piece of this news that we've just gotten, we have to question and then yeah. question ourselves about whether or not we're being unreasonable for questioning the news. It just, yeah. it feels Ah, my like my brain is is like tied in knots, and then at the same time having to perform normally in school. I just want to take a nap all day. You know, it's just it's very <laughs> very. It's surreal, tr- truly yeah. surreal. Surreal, yes. David, you've worked in Washington. What's mm-hmm. what's happening here? I mean, one of the things that I I, I saw again on social media was. Um, this conjecture that, oh, well, of course. And then he's going to come out and say, look, it was just like a common cold. It's no big deal. Um, you know, here I am. And kind of just feed all of the conspiracy theories again. Yeah. But wh- what, do, what is your take on all this? So I think, I think, we, I think with Trump, and I, and I think to, to, to jump off Sandy's point, I think we can't actually talk about what's real and what's not real. I think that, that we, are, we are in a, to go back to the Bush administration, we're in a post-truth world. And I think it's because so many people have their own truths about things. And, and, and it's interesting because, um, you know, I, as I feel view myself as someone on the left, I, I still am objective about the right because I understand that people do come to their ideas through, through a pattern. You know, and through and through certain things, some of them are unreasonable and terrible, and some of them are are just misled, right? But what I can say is how interesting it is going to be how he plays this, whether he has it or he doesn't. There's an opportunity for a redemption story here, because it gives people an opportunity to view him as a victim, because because and everyone seems to know a victim of COVID now, uh, and it also gives him an opportunity to change course where he could then become the person who comes to the realization, comes around and becomes works forward. I think that we've all heard these sort of redemption stories. I think they use them in corporate America pretty frequently where you'll see uh, beyond uh, British petroleum become beyond petroleum. Right. And this is almost the corporate greenwashing of Donald Trump. 
and maybe it's red for COVID or whatever it is, but it gives him an opportunity to change the narrative and also gives an opportunity to pay, as he is in the victim pile, he gets to be put in a way, described in a way where when, when liberals are arguably, and left people on the left, and I make that distinction, are arguably um, uh, jubilant, as, as, as I've heard some people say, I think that that allows them to look sympathetic in a way that's going to bring those moderate Republicans around and give license to those people who may have wanted him uh, to win for whatever reason. And uh, that, it, that concerns me. Yeah, just if you've tuned in uh, just recently, of course, you're listening to the Radical Reverend Show here on podcast or on uh, radio. And uh, thank you, CIT 89.5 FM, uh, still the only alternative radio station in Toronto. Um, And I'm talking to Sandy Hudson, known to everyone, co-founder of Black Lives Matter Canada, and to David Slavik, um, policy strategist and activist, uh, uh, American, I've worked in uh, Washington, D.C. for many, many years. Um, I want you to hold, both of you, to hold this idea of civil war for a minute, because before we get to that and talk about the coming civil war, let's let's talk about that debate that happened uh, between these two old white men. Um, uh, and uh, what, uh, like, I can't say the word, um, but what a, you know, S- uh, star star T uh, show this was, you know. Um, and one of the things that that struck me coming out of that was how the, the ghost of Bernie Sanders was kind of, you know, in the background there. It was like sort of, you know, they both they both trashed him. I mean, like, it was like, what? Um, but then the bullying that came from Trump, I mean, uh, the flat out, of course, racist wh- white supremacy that came out with him, you know, giving a shout out to the Proud Boys, but also just he totally dominated that debate. Um, there was no control by the moderator. Like what? I, I mean, I said, like, it, I've been through lots of political debates in my life and lots of all candidates debates and, and you know, run by a church lady volunteer you know, <laughs> who has control of the mics, you know, can turn people off and on, you know, like, uh, could do have done this job better? Like, what is going on with that? Sandy, weigh in. Do your worst. Oh my goodness. That <laughs> debate was terrible. It was total garbage. It was total garbage. I mean, from what I heard, and I was doing a lot of yelling at my television, so <laughs> I only caught a bit of it. <laughs> but from what I heard, it was just so, so terrible. I mean, Trump, as someone who's also done a lot of debate prep and debates a lot of them in student unions though so like it shouldn't be on the level of sophistication of the united states presidential debate i thought this is terrible trump was clearly taking um the strategy of never stop talking get all of your points in as much as possible and he did well with that strategy I agree. <laughs> the moderator was either not present or uh, was uh, became a a part of the debate, which was uh, stunning. They should have used, you know, the the Grammy strategy of turning off the mics <laughs> when they needed to, but they never yeah. did. And then and then Biden was responding to everything that Trump was saying. It was like Trump was driving this truck. It didn't matter what the moderator had actually asked. 
he just took it wherever his talking points wanted to go and Biden was following him instead of taking it to where he wanted his talking points to go. So every time Trump asked him a ridiculous question, Biden answered the ridiculous question. Every time he said, your son um, was involved in the scandal, Biden was like, this scandal has nothing to do with my son. And then that gets, that is then the quote that is put up you know, Biden denies this instead of Biden telling us what he actually wants to do. And then in addition, he was arguing with some phantom, you know, like bringing up, you know, just so you know, I don't agree with the Green New Deal. Just so you know, I don't, <laughs> don't agree with violent protesters. Uh, just so you know, I'm, I'm not going to uh, be in favor of uh, t- your health care uh, being removed from, uh, from, you know, people not having the private option. Like, I just, I was like, what are you doing? It should have been um, an actual discussion of ideas, but it wasn't, it was, it, it felt like a show. And just to, to marry it to what we were talking about before with respect to COVID and Trump now being able to play the victim. I think the one portion of the debate where Biden did the best was when he was talking to the audience about how many people have you all lost? And um, like, how terrible has it been for so many of you? That was the only point in the debate that I think that Trump did, which is why it kind of makes sense to really consider, you know, whether it's true or not, what this moment can do for Trump, Mm -hmm. given that he didn't perform that well with respect to COVID in the debate. David, weigh in. I think I think uh, Cindy makes some excellent points. Um, I what I what I like to hear, especially for someone who probably would like to see Joe Biden win, uh, is that uh, you know we need to be really uh, sort of uh, introspective about the performance of candidates we even like. And you know Joe Biden was not my candidate in this election. He wasn't even my top four. Uh, you know, and I think one of the, the most telling things about the debate is poor Elizabeth Warren uh, was in a situation where she wasn't even they didn't even get to hate her. I mean, I mean, let the at least get the woman a little hate, give the woman a little hate. But to move beyond that, and, and I think that's a more complicated uh, inter democratic politics thing. But I, I would say that um, it was very interesting to see people um, excuse what I thought was very poor debate prep. And a little hubris by Biden, uh, using uh, the the arguments around disability. Uh, I saw people say he has a stutter. Well, Joe Biden has been a senator, and I'm not saying a stutter doesn't matter. Joe Biden has been a vociferous senator who's speaking extremely eloquently when it's come to the to the the matter of banking, when it's come to the matter of who needs to pay their bills, social security reduction. He's been extremely eloquent. But when it came to college loan reductions and COVID and Green New Deal, he was suddenly, he suddenly found his stutter again. And I, I am very sympathetic to people with, with speech difficulties, learning disabilities. I, you know, I'm ADHD myself, you know, but what I would say is that I think that if that doesn't come natural to you, it's not going to come natural to you. And I would like to think at this per- point, he doesn't have to be the perfect politician in the past. I'd like him to be a better politician today. So, so David, let me just push you on this a little bit because we've had this discussion before. Um, there's a whole uh, swath of the left um, that just says, you know, a pox on both their houses. Like, mm-hmm. forget about it. I'm just like, I'm not like, I'm voting for one 
you know, I'm voting for a fascist versus a corporate capitalist. Like <laughs> this is not my yeah. race and I have nothing, no stake in it. And, um, uh, you know, I'm staying home. Um, I mean, what do you, what, what do you say to that? So I, I hear, I have, I've said this before, I, I think the last time I was on, I said, you know, I'm concerned that the uh, people in the Biden camp and certain people in the Democratic Party will take a victory as a victory for a slate of ideas that they've not really articulated as being their ideas. Uh, and uh, that they will then uh, return to a Clinton-esque, and I don't mean Hillary Clinton, because I think I actually helped work on her marijuana policy. I'm, you know, I don't have no problem with Hillary Clinton in that way. Uh, she's complicated, but um, I think she would have been a good president. Uh, but to a Bill Clinton 90s era austerity method of running the government. And that's not what people are voting for. Young people who are showing up to fight fascism are not showing up to fight the deficit. And I think that that's, that's that sort of politics. We cannot have that return because if we are really worried about fighting fascism in three or four years, there's going to be a fascism's friendlier face. And, you know, it's not going to be orange man bad anymore. It's going to be an attractive uh, young woman from Iowa who comes out of nowhere and is the perfect fascist uh, representative of the Republican Party. We can't protect ourselves from that if we're not acknowledging the roots of inequality, the roots of anti-Black racism, the roots of those things that are hurting us in society. Uh, and if we're just trying to do window dressing over that, that's not going to work. Sandy, um, what about the, uh, you know, the, I mean, it, it, there's, it's not inspiring. <laughs> Let's put it that way. It's at the very, it's at the very best, not inspiring here. So, um, so what are you hearing? Like, are, are, like, what do you do? What do you do with that? Gosh, I don't know, but I do see a shift with the with the organizers that I'm connected with from um, from 2016 to now. I believe in voting. Okay, I have always believed in voting. I have never heard a good argument as to why people should not vote. I've never heard that. I do know that on the left there are there is um, a, a large group of people who believe that look, if if the system uh, isn't going to radically shift with voting. What is the point? There's no point in voting. Stay home. And I, I wholeheartedly reject um, that way of thinking because to me, it's like if it does nothing, <laughs> then why do conservatives spend so much time trying to make sure that so many of us can't vote? You know, we've just gotten this news about how, how in the in the United States the Trump campaign invested a bunch of resources to try to get 3.5 million black voters to not, to stay home and not vote. And there's constantly um, these new rules being put in place, whether it's about um, denying um, former prisoners the right to vote or denying um, or gerrymandering districts so that people's uh, from particular demographics, typically black, their votes don't matter as much like there's a reason why they're doing those things it's because there is power in the vote whether whether or not we understand that power as as limited or not like that's a different question of course it's limited and of course we're not going to get we're not going to build a new world through voting but i mean gosh i just have to think about all of the people who were separated from their children at the border, mm -hmm. all of the people who literally had to go to the airport while waiting for the ACLU's um, Supreme Court challenge to the United States on the Muslim ban to come through and we're just about to board planes and then we're, we're told, 
okay, you can come back. And, you know, we're, are crying going back to their families. I'm like, it, sure, voting may not change the system, but it is, makes a material difference in people's lives. And so there has been a shift. In 2016, I remember I was at this, um, this uh, uh, Black Women's Summit in Brazil, and I was arguing with all of these Americans. I was like, you got to get your people out to vote. And they were like, it makes no difference. And I was like, what? And they were like, there's no difference between Trump and Hillary. And I was like, there is. <laughs> there is absolutely a difference between Trump and Hillary. And we cannot pretend that that's not real for our communities in particular. The, the, the stakes are just too high. And quite frankly, I want an easier terrain to organize on. So, you know, I, I, we had those debates, people decided that they weren't going to be involved in the vote. Well, now this time around, more folks are like, we can't, we cannot risk not being involved in the vote. And we have to encourage people to vote. We need people to understand that we need them to do more than vote, but we can't uh, take the attack this time that it's, it's, uh, it makes no difference because clearly it does. Um, yeah, thank you both for that. I, uh, I can't help but think, you know, history, um, I, and I remember, you know, the, the German socialists in the 30s, you know, thinking, oh, this crazy little group of fascists, they'll, nobody's ever going to take them seriously. So, I mean, I keep, you know, harking back to that. Um, and who knew he would win in the first place? I mean, that was a shocker to most people. I fear that. And I, I'm glad to hear that, that you know, your sense on the ground is that people are showing up. And of course, um, and listen, as an NDPer up here, um, who's most critical of my own party, among others, but um, <laughs> I get, you know, ain't no perfect party. Um, so let's, you know, you do, like get in there and, and get fighting, fighting for sure. Let's talk about and I, fighting. And I should say, actually, yeah. in terms of numbers, a few days ago, I read a stat that at this time in the last election, for folks who voted early, there was about 9,000 votes and there have already been over a million votes this time around early. So, I mean, who knows, maybe that's COVID, but it, hopefully it's it's um, a sign of a shift in the way people think about voting. Here's hoping. So let's talk about, um, again, in their fighting, uh, whatever, um, with this, you brought up the word civil war. Uh, I think it, it must be frightening down there. I mean, people have guns, you know? Um, and they're out in the streets and this, this, you know, dog whistle to the proud boys, not that, I mean, I just, I was just interviewed myself before this show and, 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 and I got that question. Oh, but things are different north of the border. They're not different, but there is a matter of scale here. I mean, there's still incredible racism here and, you know, we invented apartheid here and we could go on, but people have guns down there. There are more guns down there. Sandy. Um, you you mentioned this possibility, whatever happens, Biden gets elected, you know, they're not going to take it sitting down um, and on the right. And if Trump gets elected, they're not going to take it sitting down. So what do you think? What's what's going to happen? What do you think is going to happen? What do you think we should do about it? This is the hardest question. I I don't know what we do because I cannot imagine any situation that looks peaceful after the election. 
you know, if Trump wins, that is going to embolden the way that he's responded to protesters, for example, in Portland. And I went to Portland. I've seen what's happening. It's, it's, a, it, it's, it's stunning, you know, like there, there's hardly even any chanting happening at the protests because the protesters are, are mostly meek. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I've, I've been to, to way more intense protests and uh, it, it'll just be a few people standing around on the streets and then the police come out in riot gear and they're saying, they say, this is a riot and they start immediately throwing tear gas. It's, it's wild. That sort of thing will be emboldened by a win. And so what does that do to a democratic society? Okay, so that's what happens if Trump wins. If Biden wins, Trump, it appears, will try to delegitimize the election uh, in, in the eyes of his supporters. And those supporters are armed. Those supporters are also taking to the streets and attacking people. And so what is that going to look like? I think that it's gonna be quite bad. I have a bag packed behind my bed here. <laughs> <laughs> that and and some contacts in Vancouver that have already been warned that in the event that um, things seem to be untenable, I might just drive up, you know, and uh, and try to get out of here because I'm terrified, yeah. and I don't know what we do afterwards. I don't know how to plan for it. And I was talking to some lawyers from the ACLU. Um, and in particular, uh, Dale Ho, who, who worked on um, the, the census question um, in the United States, which was this controversy where Trump wanted to add citizenship to, this, to the census as a way to, um, to further his, his myth that there's this large um, uh, portion of non-citizens who are voting and you know, trying to mess with the elections, which is not true. But in any case, this is a lawyer who's argued before the Supreme Court to, to, to oppose some of these things. And I asked him, what are you folks doing to prepare for, post, for the post-election world? And he's like, we have no idea what to do. And there's just so much that we're doing in the, in the pre-work before the election that it just feels like we're holding too many plates and everything could fall. And so I, and I don't know who's planning appropriately. It's really scary. It's interesting too. And I'm going to throw this to you, David, next, of course, but um, you know, I, I think of the militancy, I'm old. So I think of the militancy of the sixties and the seventies um, uh, in the States in particular, and in particular around, you know, I think of the black Panther movement and I think of, you know, like there was a sort of militant left and now the militancy we see in that sense seems to be all on the right. Um, I don't know. I'm, yeah, I, I hear you. It's scary. David, what's going to happen after the election and what should we do? So I just I just spoke to an attorney in Pennsylvania who's working on the uh, lawsuit from the Trump administration about mail-in ballots. Uh, we, had, we had a long discussion. I, I can't say what county. I don't want to give up the goat here. But I will say that people are preparing. There is a, uh, a large contingent of lawyers uh, that are ready. The problem is, and I think that this is something that, that is appropriate to the law and order panel, is that law and order ends at the barrel of a gun. And I think that that is one of the most interesting things about this, especially as, as someone living in Canada. Uh, the, but I will say the birthplace of the Proud Boys uh, right in Toronto, where where we've all lived at one point or not another. Uh, I've uh, gone to a friend's birthday party and a Proud Boy showed up. 
Uh, he was, you know, uh, it, it happens. This is the type of thing that happens in Toronto. We all know this. Uh, but that we do need to acknowledge that, that that's important. I, I have talked to friends in the States. I'm from rural Pennsylvania in a, a county that Obama, went for Obama and then for Trump. Uh, so it gives you the understanding that this is all in flux and very complicated, right? And it's about who shows up and who doesn't, uh, to go back to Sandy's uh, point. Um, but I think in a, in a, uh, a world post-Trump or a world that, after, you know, uh, in a continued Trump world, I think what we do need to consider is our legal options and our options that, that go beyond and, and are more about community protection. And I think that those are the things that we have to be more serious about and also uh, a little more discreet about, because I think people on the left like to tweet out their, their game plans in ways that they probably shouldn't. It sounds, it sounds ominous a little bit. I, what about the Supreme Court, though? I mean, what about this, you know, stacking it? I mean, the, the legal, you know, this is the law and disorder panel, but I mean, the legal, uh, the legal options may be extremely limited if, if that's the case. Um, Sandy, uh, Supreme Court. I mean, this, the Supreme Court makeup right now is, is, uh, is very scary. It's very, very scary. It does seem as though, um, there's very little hope um, there uh, at the Supreme Court. Um, there is a, uh, a, a legal scholar by the name of Erwin Shermansky who wrote an article in, in after the, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed, um, suggesting that uh, the Democrats could uh, uh, expand how many seats there are uh, on the Supreme Court in order to, in the event that they win the election, stack the Supreme Court themselves, which is an option I think that the right would not hesitate to use, <laughs> to be quite frank, given, given the reality we're in. But I'm, you know, I get nervous about how often the left argues against itself, even when there's nobody on the other side saying the things <laughs> um, that would make make them need to, 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 to be cautious. But the other thing that um, folks have raised as something to be cautious of when expanding the, the amount of justices on the Supreme Court is that, okay, if they do it, the Republicans can do it too, and they might do it the next time they have power. And it's like, yeah, and in fact, they will. <laughs> so who cares? <laughs> I mean, and they have, right? Yeah. It's just, it's like, is it important enough? Is is that an important enough deterrent to um, throw away the decisions on Roe v. Wade? Like, is that an important enough yeah. um, uh, deterrent to throw away some of the very critical mm -hmm. civil rights legislation um, that have been upheld um, by the Supreme Court? I I don't think so. I'm I'm the type person I'm like just stack it then like if that's the only option you have then that is what you should do because the amount of people who give birth in this country who have the ability to give birth in this country who will die as a result of not having access to proper reproductive care is just far too great to say well the republicans can do it too later who cares Absolutely. Now, so so David, here's a question for you, because being a, sort of an insider in the Democratic Party, I mean, up here in Canada, we have, you know, arguably a Labour Party, the NDP, 
for for whatever you know our criticism may be of that. I mean, it, we have a Labour Party, we have a third party. Not the case south of the border. Mm-hmm. And the and and let's face it, the Democrats are are funded by Wall Street too. Um, so, like, is there hope within the Democrat? I mean, we've seen the squad, you know, OAC. We've 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 got some hope there. But I mean, what? Um, but is is there enough hope there within the Democratic Party? You're pointing out that you know Biden, even if he wins, I mean this. Yeah. So, so what needs to happen there in the Democratic so, Party too? So if I, I Biden say, wins to make this a, a, an actual win for anybody. I think I think the 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 first thing to recognize about parties is that the party like a like a party, a birthday party, a kid's birthday party, to a house party, the party is about who shows up. And once you're at the party, how you act is up to you. And I think that that's one of the things that I think that that a lot of young progressive and left activists do not recognize is that your county committee is you could take it over in about three weeks. There's a bunch of older people who are dying for people to do some work, to be serve on a committee, to print the T-shirts, to make the buttons. And a lot of them are old lefties who would love to support left policies. And I remember when I first ran for the Pennsylvania State House, I was 26. Um, within, we realized that there was county committee seats that had never been filled. I called my buddies from high school and said, hey, you're a Democrat now. Hey, you're doing what I say. And hey, you're running for this thing. And you know what? They said, you know what, Dave? I like you. So I'm going to do it. <laughs> and you know, before, before the end of it, a committee that had been run essentially by the head of the Pennsylvania Bankers Association was run by me a 26-year-old kid who was way more progressive than my county I would grow up in. So that the party is who shows up. And that's the thing, is that when you don't vote, you don't get a say. But you also have to say you cannot have blind faith in the party in the way that I think some of the people who are younger people in the Biden campaign would like us to. And I think it is, it's a, you can criticize Biden, you can say he shouldn't have been the candidate, all those things, but you get him elected, and then you sit there in front of their office, like the Sunrise Movement did, like a lot of the supporters of the Green New Deal did, like AOC went and petitioned her own leader. That's not something that was done in Washington in a long time. But I will tell you, having done some grassroots lobbying on the Hill for things like uh, FGM, anti-FGM legislations, for anti-human trafficking legislation, you can change things. And believe it or not, Republicans know they have Democrats in their in their district, and they're way more way more supportive of certain issues if you can frame them a little differently. So I think I think as much as I, I think the Republican Party is a hate group, I think that you, you have to understand that individual members want to be reelected. Yeah. Um, let, let, let's shift a bit. We, we, we don't have all that much time left. Um, of course, I'm talking to Sandy Hudson, founder of the Black Lives Movement uh, uh, movement in Canada, a winner of numerous awards, featured in everything New York Times and CBC. Um, and David Slavic, um, as you heard, a political strategist, worked in Washington for 15 years in policy, uh, and, uh, and uh, Sandy at UCLA, and, and David a lawyer. Um, and this is the Law and Disorder panel on the Radical Reverend Show, so that's what you're listening to. We've been talking American politics. Uh, let's move it a little north of the border now. Um, a deal was struck between Jagmeet Singh, uh, leader of the NDP here, of course, and um, Justin Trudeau. Um, to keep the government in office. And a couple of asks, um, one that uh, sick pay be extended uh, during the COVID crisis to those that need it. 
I get sick, and also um, a sort of extension of the CERB program, which was $2,000 a month uh, to people who were out of work because of COVID. Um, David, what do you think of the deal? I'm going to start with you first since you're in Canada now. So I, I think uh, I think that the, the Trudeau government is not fully taking advantage of the moment. I think that you have a, a conservative government, a conservative leadership that is, uh, you know, you could say what you want about Andrew Scheer, but he had a, a boyish Canadian charm that I think they could appeal to people in some odd way that as an American living in Canada, I can never understand. It just, it's, uh, you know, it's some hockey dad stuff that I don't get. I played basketball. I don't get it. But I do know that it was there. Aaron O'Toole is the, is the least appealing human being I've encountered in a long time. And, and, and most things that are unappealing are things that have strong flavors, like durian, right? Or, you know, or, or sea slugs or something, you know, something exotic. But Aaron O'Toole is unappealing in his blandness. And the interesting thing is so bland that it's actually offensive because he's his it, it's it's this like audacious whiteness is actually like I find racist just by his mere existence. Now that's like just my feeling. That's my outside feeling. But what I will say about the conservatives is that they're vulnerable. And right now, this is a great opportunity to kick them back to the Western states where they belong. And not just to the Western states, because there's a great history of, of, of labor and of, of minor strikes and things like that in the Western states. I'm talking about kick them all the way into the Arctic. You're showing your Americanism. Kick them all the way into our, our Arctic. <laughs> but what I would say is that this is an opportunity for Trudeau to be the leader that he wants to be and wants to be known as. We know his, his reign is not, I don't think as long as he thinks it is in the future, but I think he has an opportunity to, to, to be, uh, you know, the type of Douglas figure that I think the moment calls for. And I think Jagmeet Singh has an opportunity to, to position himself for the next 20 years if he can actually force them to do something. Getting them to do the obvious thing is not a win. And I think that that's where we're at right now. I think the obvious thing is to extend SERP. I think the obvious thing is I, I think this child, as someone who has two children, I just had twins uh, and we're, you know, we're trying to, to work and make things work. Uh, you know, I think that this, this uh, child care benefit is fine, but I think it doesn't recognize the realities of today. Working women are at, put at a disadvantage that is extreme. Working women also vote. And they care about things. And they're often uh, often making even more money than, than the rest of their household. So I think that what we need to recognize is that we are, if we're going to be, if Justin Trudeau is going to be the woke baby he wants to be, you know, with his socks and his smile, we need to acknowledge that women need the opportunity to work and make this economy run like it does. And that is what I would do, is I would make those kitchen table issues the NDP's mandate. Sandy, what do you think of the deal? Jagmeet Singh, Justin Trudeau, um, together again. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I really agree with David that they're just doing the obvious. I thought generally the throne speech was very, very lackluster. I'm like, like, look at the time that we're living in right now. There's so much opportunity to do so much. It was obvious that childcare was gonna be promised again by Trudeau. Let's not forget that he's made this promise before and that the liberals continue to make this, they've been making this promise for over 20 years. Um, and he made the promise about pharmacare 
again, and again, like, let's not forget, I, you know, the liberal throne speech read to me like a list of failures. It read like a, a list of things that they had once promised and can, did not do. And I thought that that could have been better um, raised by the NDP. I think Jagmeet Singh did a, a pretty good job of raising it. Actually, uh, a few of these things um, uh, in the in the the post address to the nation uh, press conference that he did. But I think that it could have gone. I think that the agreement could have gone beyond um, beyond a discussion of of just. Uh, sick days and serve. I, I just think that we're at a time when, like, look, we climate should be a top of mind. Like, they're talking about these two billion trees and that's it. Come on, you need to push on on climate. And and they've made this this promise around uh, uh, racial injustice, as they call it, and um, and that they're going to. Uh, provide more money for community policing initiatives. It's just like as a, as a way to resolve uh, some of what uh, black and indigenous communities have been calling for. Nobody's asked for that. And uh, we have zero champion at the federal level who is responding to what black and indigenous folks in Canada have been raising with respect to um, the, the impacts of police, police violence against our communities. And the NDP said absolutely nothing about that, despite the fact that it is widely popular with the rest of the Canadian population. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I, you know, like, okay, they got an obvious deal. It was an obvious thing that the Liberals would have agreed to regardless. Nobody was ready for an election. So you could have pushed harder. Yeah, and, and uh, absolutely agreed with both of you. Um, it was very clear to me that there wasn't going to be an election and that the rest was posturing because you just have to look at the fundraising yes. and the polling stats. I mean, if you want to know what's going to happen in politics, you just look at those two factors. Do you have the money? Do you have the votes? And they had neither. Nobody did. Um, nothing going to happen. Um, so exactly. it was very clear. And and yeah, I mean, oh my goodness. I think it's 50 years that the Liberals have been promising childcare, um, pharmacare. Yeah, I mean, this <laughs> is like... This is the liberals' metier. And what was, and you're right, shocking that there was nothing about indigenous rights. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I mean, right now in Canada, you know, we've got the situation on the West Coast, you know, with, you know, with outrageous racism, you know, for the Mi'kmaq. We've got uh, 1492 land back lane happening, an occupation that's being met with bullets and arrests. Um, we still don't have clean drinking water. We still don't have equality in terms of educational funding. Um, and, you know, and nothing, just public relations, again, from the government, not even that in the throne speech. Um, so it's pretty shocking. And, um, and yeah, I mean, as, 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 as always, sadly, the NDP just are trying to replace the Liberal Party, which they're never freaking going to do. Like, <laughs> my, you know, this makes my head explode. But this is absolutely how they think. Uh, they think British. They think we want to be the Labour Party and then we'll have the Tories and then everything will be okay. And that's why the NDP get along better often with the Tories than they do with the Liberals. Um, we'll just replace them. And so we'll move to the center and then people will vote for us because we'll be better left Liberals than the Liberals. And it's never worked, it will never work. Um, we see this incredible time of political you know, shifting with 
you know, moving to the left, moving to the right, and the liberals falling, uh, the middle's falling out, and that means the neoliberals' mm-hmm. middle is falling out. Um, this is the time to be full-on socialist in the NDP and to and to ask for what's necessary. Um, and then, you know what, they could have asked for everything and then settled for what they got <laughs> instead of only asking for what they got. I mean, isn't that how negotiations supposed to work? Anyway, I, I agree. Um, I think that's that's astute. Um, but so uh, again, and to David's point, which was I think excellent, is that just show up, you know. So like, show up to your yeah. local <laughs> have a labor party. Um, so like, show up to it and try to kind of get it to do good things. Um, okay, last last like moving it back to Ontario. Uh, we miss you, Sandy. We hope that one day you come home again. <laughs> we understand if you go. Um, so in Ontario. Oh no, I will. I'm not going to stay out here forever. <laughs> um, and, and David, you'll come home again too. Um, so so back to Fordland, right? Like um, here we are. Um, they they certainly his backroom have done a good job of crass crafting Doug Ford. He's no longer the angry right-wing guy. Um, he's now the kind of uncle that shows up at your parties. He's not the, you know, the sharpest knife in the drawer, but, but, you know, he's kind of nice and a calming presence and he's saying nice things, but we have a second wave. The pandemic spiking, their ridiculous lineups. I waited three and a half hours in one. Um, people have to take a day off work. And then just newsflash, 90,000 plus tests that haven't even been tested yet, <laughs> that haven't been looked at yet. So there's huge backlog of tests um, that it's meaningless now to get a test really is what that's saying in, in the midst of a spike. So, um, so, and yet he's high in the polls. Okay, so explainez-vous. Um, Sandy, why is Doug Ford high in the polls despite uh, people literally dying? I actually think that a lot of this is the fault of the media. I don't think that the media has been very good at uh, really explaining to uh, the population what's happening and holding his feet to the fire. And then some of the 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 um, uh, the blame has to be shouldered by opposition parties who are just not um, you know explaining enough what's happening and uh, you know I'm not talking about everyone to be very clear I think that for example MPP uh, Merritt Stiles has been doing a fantastic job raising of what a lot of the concerns are with respect to schools opening up um, and the fact that some a lot of students didn't even have teachers um, uh, in the first couple weeks of school which is unthinkable but my gosh like this we knew that the second wave was possible a long time ago. Why are we not prepared for it right now? It doesn't make sense. Why are the the measures uh, that are being taken to deal with the second wave coming out so late and so with such uh, confusing uh, way of, of of making these directives? I think it's it's really irresponsible, and it's also really irresponsible that the media hasn't done um, the job that it really needs to. Um, to to be clear with the electorate about what's happening. I think that also in the beginning of the summer, when this all started, people were very, very um, nervous, perhaps, and and far too generous uh, to Ford. Like, 
him coming out and just acknowledging that there was a problem, people were like, oh, he's such a great leader. We never expected this. And I was like, but he's not doing anything. He hasn't announced any measures. He's just coming out and saying, this is terrible. And everyone's like, oh, what a leader guy. Great. And it's hard to now come back from that. Like you set it up to say mere acknowledgement is enough when in fact he has far more power and far more responsibility than that. And we should be expecting far more than that. We only need to look to our peers around the world, not America, but everywhere else, um, to, to know that what has happened in Ontario is entirely preventable and absolutely unacceptable. David, you have to come back here too. So what do you yeah. think? I'm going to give two comparisons. And I think that to go back to what happened in America is important, is that I think Doug Ford has defined himself as being Canada's Trump. And when he is acting slightly less Trumpian, he gets like he gets a Nobel Peace Prize, you know. And the fact is, by Canadian standards, he is still Canada's Trump. He is cutting things wantonly. He is appointing people who are not effective at their jobs. There's people without college degrees running education. There's people who don't understand, who's never smoked a joint and never seen a weed plant running the marijuana uh, situation there. He is time and time again, cronyized the government in Ontario, which is one of the more effective governments in the world and can be if it's run correctly. It, the people in Ontario are rule of following generally. They want to do what's right. They're often bland by my standards you know, as an American, but they really do want to do what's right. And I think that there's something really beautiful, especially about the GTA and the people there, who are really in it together. It's Toronto versus everybody, right? Doug Ford has used that opportunity to make it Ontario versus Toronto and conservatives versus liberals, conservatives versus NDP, and conservatives versus black, indigenous people of color. And I think whether that subtext, the text is explicit or explicit, I think the focus on weddings in Brampton, I think the focus on parties, things like that in the discussions is really ignoring the fact that people have to go back to work in unsafe conditions. We've not forced one of the biggest monopolies in North America, the Loblaws people, to actually provide PPE and protection for these people. Uh, my Loblaws, which is in a very nice neighborhood in the Palmerston area, has been shut down numerous times for people having COVID. I've seen people without adequate PPE there, but that's allowed. That's allowed. They can fix bread prices and they can also kill their, their employees. That's not acceptable. If you are the Trump or the, the little dictator that you want to be, show it. And I think Doug Ford, is a, his, he's talking about his fortitude, but he's not showing any fortitude. And I think that's the problem. It's interesting in, in Ontario politics, you know, you look back on the days of Bill Davis and he seems like a, a socialist in comparison to just about anything that's happened since. Um, uh, but yeah, and I, I had to work with, I mean, I worked with these people for 12 years, um, many of them. And, um, and and some of what I see across the aisle now is shocking to me, even just knowing them. Um, so Christine Elliott, who ran against Doug Ford, come on, um, ran against Patrick Brown, um, could make her political mark by standing up to Doug Ford, especially now as Minister of Health, and instead does not literally stands behind him in the in the press conferences and claps every time he, he speaks. I mean, this is this is kind of shocking, um, I, I, and it, it's shocking even. Sit, I, 
being ideologically opposed to everything conservative, it's still shocking because these are people that I kind of got to know and thought had some principles. But anyway, <laughs> that being what it is, um, uh, we, we only have very few minutes left. Uh, so I, I, things to look out for, if we can sort of summarize it in the upcoming. So Sandy, uh, you're organizing. Um, how do you organize? I mean, whatever happens down there, I mean, hopefully the uprising, as I call it, will continue. Um, how do you organize? Um, what, what, what's top of mind for you right now? To me, I think the best thing to do is to focus on the local, to focus on the local as much as possible. The local is where the big shifts are made um, federally to be quite frank, they all start at a local level. And so, um, you know, living in California, which is a state where they do a lot of these prop votes at the same time as the election, which are basically referenda on a number of, of giant items. Like these are, are really big issues um, that I'm trying to, you know, assist people in, in their organizing with as much as possible. And I think that's the same thing that needs to happen um, in Canada. You know, when, when we have uh, a, a political electorate that really seems to uh, disregard and disrespect a lot of what people uh, are, are, are demanding be brought to the fore, we have to change our society and the way that we respond to that disrespect by shifting how we um, how we look at things at a local level. And so I think, uh, for example, and this is something that Nora and I have talked about on our podcast, uh, like I, I really think that we need to think about how unions are engaging at this time locally. I, I think that schools shouldn't have opened up and I think that uh, uh, unions could have been a larger part of that. It doesn't matter that it's not strike time. You know, it's COVID. We've never been in this type of situation um, uh, in, you know, certainly in my lifetime. And so like, you know, take, take the hard, um, the difficult path to say, we refuse to put our workers in, 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 in danger in this way, and we are not, not coming to work. And, and see where that takes you. We need to build the type of local actions that are courageous enough to resist uh, a system that is completely ignoring us, because that, that is what will cause the system to, to turn and face us so that we can start um, uh, uh, moving things the way they need to be moved. So both in America and in Canada, I really, really, really think that uh, the, the, the crucial space for organizers right now is local. Thank you. Um, David, very, very quickly, we just have a minute left. Um, thoughts? So I, I have to agree uh, 100%. I mean, this is rare in, in my life that I've, I've said that. But uh, I would say that, uh, especially in Ontario, I think that the teachers union has some power. I I've saw them act in, in a really powerful way this uh, past year. Um, what I would like to see is that to, for people on the left to, to shake off their COVID uh, sort of anxiety. I think we're all running high with cortisol. And understand that the power of the people is now. It is really important. Um, I'm sitting here in Newfoundland. The Dominion workers, who are, which is the Loblaws company, are on strike for the last seven weeks. I haven't been able to get half of the stuff. I've been able to get my sriracha for about six weeks, which is, you know, for a yuppie like me is, is hard. But you know what? Every time I go by there, we beep. We give them some donuts. That's what we do. Because this is the time 
and this is the place and the place is where you're sitting. And I think that's the most important thing we need to take away. Thank you. And you've been listening to the Radical Reverend Show. Always interested in your comments. Please keep them coming. Till next time, just remember, resist. Mm-hmm.